Gordy. Go get the provisions, you morphodite. Don't call me any of your mother's pet names. <laughs> what a wet end you are, LeChance. Shut up. I don't shut, shut up. up. I, I grow up. And when I look at you, I throw up. The rain would fall and hide the day they buried you. Christine. What is the big holiday in April that we celebrate what used to be the Roman New Year? I don't know. Ah, uh, you almost caught me. Forget it, Ross. Oh, oh, no, 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 no. Seeing as the show is about holidays, you get a holiday from being slut-food. No slut? No slut. <laughs> okay, Ross, what was that question again? What is the big holiday in April that we celebrate what used to be the Roman New Year? I don't know. What is it? Uh, April Fool's Day. Hi guys, this is Hannah, and I think that I'm gonna tell you the truth about slime. I don't know about you guys, but have you guys watched a slime video and watched it three times? You know, watched it while you're trying to make the slime and failed did exactly the right things. I have. And I think they just switch it out for putty or slime or whatever you want to call this stuff. But this, I did not make this. I bought this at my dollar, local dollar store. It's um, called the like, joke being around. Batman, what happened? Are you okay? He's slime. I'm Ira Glass. Welcome to Jackass. It's episode 112 of the Humor in the Abject podcast. I'm your host, Sean J. Patrick Carney. In this special edition of the pod, we're talking slime with artists Christopher Micklig and Oliver Payne. Last year, Micklig, who lives and works in Eugene, Oregon, put out a new book, File Under Slime, which offers a critical chronology of the viscous substance beginning in the 1930s with ectoplasm and spirit photography through goopy art by Robert Smithson and Linda Banglis up to present-day rapper Young Thug and nostalgia trip streaming television like Stranger Things. Our mutual acquaintance, the artist Rick Silva, made an introduction and I found myself wondering how exactly a podcast called Humor in the Abject had over 100-plus episodes so conspicuously ignored slime. Right about the same time that Micklig released his book, Payne, a British expat and longtime Los Angeles resident concerned with the aesthetics and theory of video art and video gaming, released a moving image essay titled A Brief History of Slime. The careening piece asks important questions like, what is slime? What is puke? And what are nukes? Situating slime in a broader context of American cultural, economic, and military imperialism. Scope the episode description for a link to purchase Micklig's book from Hat and Beard Press and to watch Payne's piece on Vimeo. Here's my conversation with Christopher Micklig and Oliver Payne. Awesome. <laughs> Christopher Micklig, Oliver Payne, welcome to Humor and the Abject. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having Thank us. Thank you so much for having us. We're going to talk about slime today. I've got the brothers in slime. Um, and I want to start out with Christopher. I've got a question for you here. Um, your recent book, File Under Slime, you begin it by connecting slime with a pair of philosophical frameworks, namely Sartre's musing on skiing and Kristeva's inventorying of bodily fluids. And later you're going to go on to discuss nuclear weapons, contemporary art, 
Heaven's Gate Cult, but also Garbage Pail Kids, Poltergeist, and Encino Man. And I was curious why it was important for you uh, in putting this book together to ground it first in this philosophical framework instead of leading with spectacle or nostalgia or cartooning or something like that. Like, why why so serious? <laughs> uh, thanks for the question. Um <laughs> <laughs> right, right out of the gate. This is the right to this, the heart of the matter in a way. Um, the project really began as a kind of a gathering or a collection of visual representations or uh, occurrences of slime in pop culture, really, as I think we most commonly think of it as this um, type of substance subject matter that emerges in pop culture in the 1980s and becomes really kind of a prominent part of um of uh, pop culture. Um, once I sort of began uh, spending more time thinking about slime, I had to do some work to kind of go back in time and try to figure out where some of the ideas came from. Um, and so the theoretical or the literary references really were necessary in the sense that there were uh, you know, descriptions and writing about slime or slimy things before there were visual representations. Hmm. Um, and so that's kind of what really drove me to uh, pick up the theoretical references from Sartre and Kristeva, uh, George Bataille and others, because they had done a lot of writing about uh, qualities of sliminess or of uh, slimy things uh, or at, about what was at stake in this sort of idea of sliminess. Um, before really there were visual representations of it. Um, and so it became kind of really just a matter of um, those were important chronological pieces to this timeline about the, um, about the kind of evolution of slime as, as an idea and then as um, a visually recognizable uh, set of <laughs> set of qualities. Yeah, it, it kicks off too with this uh, quote from Mike Kelly. Um, and I wonder if you might um, hip the listeners uh, briefly to a bit about Kelly's writings on ectoplasm and spirit photography and how that like kind of finds its way into your writings about slime, but also your relationship with Kelly's work. Yeah, um, my relationship to, uh, to Mike's work is um, primarily that I knew about his writing um, before really I knew a lot about his artwork actually. Um, and I was probably like a lot of people, um, uh, of my generation that learned about Mike Kelly's work and a lot of contemporary art through music. Music mm -hmm. was kind of like a, a gateway drug for me to discover kind of visual culture and contemporary art. And it was, you know, truly, um, from Sonic Youth album packaging that I discovered Mike yeah. Kelly's work. By the first place I saw it. Yeah. Yeah, and at the time, you know, that uh, for me, that was a watershed moment. I was a sociology student at the time, um, and I was really uh, also kind of a creative uh, person. You know, like I had a lot of, like, uh, I, you know, I was interested in art, but I didn't really know that that was the thing you could pursue, you know, mm. as a as a kind of a career or something. Um, and when I discovered Kelly's work, it really was like this watershed moment for me because it was incredibly interdisciplinary. Um, it was broad. Um, it was synthesizing a kind of interest in culture and theory and history. And um, all of these levers were being pulled in the work um, that I thought were just, you know, compelling and um, really captivating. 
Um, so uh, eventually, um, fast forward, I moved to Los Angeles um, several years before I went to graduate school. In the back of my mind, I sort of had had this notion like, oh, it would be interesting to study with this person hmm. uh, and not even really knowing that they that he taught or where he taught. And that happened to be at Art Center. Um, and so I was fortunate in a way to overlap with um, with Mike uh, while he was at Art Center. He was a thesis advisor for me. Um, but wound up actually leaving uh, the year, the in my final year there. Didn't have a ton of contact with him, actually. He was so busy at the time. Um, this was 2006, 2007. Hmm. Um, but his uh, kind of, um, the way that he modeled, um, you know, creative inquiry and research and uh, being a studio artist, um, this kind of enduring, really primary interest that he always had in visual pleasure um, were still... Um, ideas uh, that you know really kind of informed and helped me to kind of figure out um how i was going to uh, you know operate as the studio artist and as a writer etc but um the ufology uh, yeah. piece of it um that essay yeah and this is the mike the kelly mike essay, kelly essay yeah, yeah which was originally published in a blog called blastitudes um and it was a conversation between he and another writer and scholar named ma greenstein that essay, in a way, um, is is the is the kind of um, template, or at least it's a very um, important reference for my project. And I would say a really good example of um, the kind of eclectic approach to thinking about pop culture and all of its resonances um, uh, that that Mike was kind of um, always, uh, you know, it was a way that he was always thinking and working. Um, and in that, he does make reference to Sartre. He does make reference to Chris Deva. Um, I would say that the essay on the whole is really kind of primarily interested in a kind of ontology of slime um, and pretty quickly goes into a territory of ufology. And I guess what we could describe as like blob erotics hmm. um, and um, these kind of uh, this sort of, uh, um, you know, this kind of like uh, sensuous, for lack of a better word, at dimension of slimy things um so my project in a way references some of those as kind of like important starting points for further research um but i uh, don't go maybe as far into the territory of ufos in particular um uh, which um is you know an important kind of um uh, difference like in the shape of the project overall so this idea that you know kelly has this very fascinating collage aesthetic, both in terms of writing and as a studio artist, I think leads me into asking Oliver about the film A Brief History of Slime, which um, kind of on-ramps viewers by way of California as a site and metaphor, uh, introducing slime in what I would kind of call like its second vignette. It's also this pastiche, it feels like, of all of these different sections. Um, but you lead really specifically um, with... California, and I wonder what is uniquely slimy about California or uniquely California about slime that uh, uh, this brief history of slime, it kicks off with, what is California? It's a bit of, <laughs> I, I like it, but I'm, <laughs> I'm curious, like what, why, why? So Christopher's got this philosophical introduction and you've got this very geo-specific and, and cultural one. Yeah, um, that's right. Uh, thanks for having us again. And that's a great question um, to start off with. Uh, Hell yeah. I think that the the line I use in the film, I think I say California is the, both the funnel and the filter between America and the rest of the world. Because mm. um, I feel like uh, California 
um, ultimately has the final say in how America presents itself to the world. Even if um, uh, a TV show sh set in Chicago is likely to be filmed, uh, edited, scripted, performed by people in Los Angeles. And even, even if, kind of, if we're all very aware that big decisions are made in like Washington, D.C., I think it's probably fair to say that our glo globally our perception of Washington, D.C. is a sort of hmm. a, an illusion, again, created within Hollywood. Um, less so nowadays, but uh, particularly at the, at the height of uh, slimy times. So uh, <laughs> it's not that California is necessarily so slimy. It's just that slime found its way through California to the rest of the world through the pop culture mm, that it was mm -hmm. in kind of in the same way that kind of slime came to sort of like uh, have uh, all of these radioactive qualities again it's not that california uh, isn't necessarily specifically radioactive just that it kind of mediates how radioactivity is shown through cartoons toys candy uh, thrash metal and uh like Nickelodeon, mm -hmm. which is almost, you know, like the slime network. Yeah, yeah. So naturally, uh, being an expat from London, England, uh, and living in LA as long as I have, uh, California seemed like a sort of fun jump off to to begin talking about all this stuff, like a kind of context to set it all in. Yeah, and it seems like it also these, you know, you mentioned thrash metal, but these other subcultural places that slime seeps into or becomes um, an aesthetic of, whether that's skateboarding and punk music and this fascination with like toxic waste and apocalypse and all, like it, it, it finds its way into those things. So it made, uh, it, it's a funny counterpoint to its sunny type of disposition broadly. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about, I grew up in the Midwest and Michigan specifically, which is part of the reason I'm so fascinated with Kelly is he kind of like fuses this Americana Midwest with California so seamlessly. That is really fascinating. But so we're, I'm curious if the two of you did this, uh, is this just like slime serendipity? Like, how did you both in 2022, how does Oliver come out with this film and Christopher, you come out with this book? Are you in conversation before this or how did the two of you get connected uh, on slime? Oliver, should I, I'll tell my version of this and then. Yeah, yeah. there's uh, two Oliver, sides, I, I, I want to like, hear both. <laughs> yeah, so, so, so one thing, like, uh, to be clear, like I've been familiar with Oliver's work for a long time. Sure, And yeah. um so uh, Oliver had an exhibition um, that was opening at um, Overton uh, Gallery in Los Angeles. And uh, when I saw the press release for that, of course, I was excited. And then also just totally surprised in a way <laughs> like, of the coincidence, um, just that we, we were, were both obviously had been working on something related to slime. Um, and uh, we have a mutual friend in common, Jan Tumler, um, colleague of Oliver's at Art Center, and a super, super, uh, like just incredible person, and um, wrote the foreword for for yeah. my book, and uh, immediately sort of made that connection. Uh, Jan's one of these people that's at the at the uh, intersection of many like interesting connections, and just sort of immediately reached out. Oliver, was it Jan or was it, had you reached out to me before Jan made the connection? Uh, they, it was a, a day apart, actually. Um, uh, I, I pitched him to the post by one day uh, and then he hit me up uh, a day after I reached out to you. And was like, you've got to speak to this guy about this book. Um, it's, I've just seen your film. 
Yeah, so my my version of it uh, was, well, I have an expression I use occasionally, uh, which is when something gets anced, which is when a, a kind of an inferior version gets released before <laughs> the kind of like the real one. Mm-hmm. And uh, the expression takes its title from uh, the film Ants coming out before uh, Bug's Life. And you kind of feel like... Uh, <laughs> like Bugs Life was almost like almost putting the finishing touches on it when someone was all like, "Hey, I heard they're making a film about bugs. Let's uh-huh. get one out as soon as they could." Um, the politics of ants are better, I think. Though <laughs> um, that's probably true, actually. Uh, but uh, so I'd made this, I'd made this, this film um, and presented it in in a pizza box uh, in New York, and within a few weeks afterwards, I saw a press release for a book. That uh, that just looked incredible, and I was like, "Oh my god, have I answered someone? Have I accidentally <laughs> answered someone? I didn't mean to." Um, but what's happened here, here is this like far, far like thoroughly more more thoroughly researched. Um, it's just like more kind of like rigorously kind of like academic and intellectual in like in every way. But essentially, like these images I'm seeing were all stills that I'd kind of used in the film. So um, mm-hmm. I was over the moon, um, not that, that that I'd potentially answered anybody, uh, not that at all, but just simply that there was some kind of a affirmation that I, that someone else was thinking the same way. And um, where I think it's actually quite a nice story is that uh, my initial reaction was, oh, I have to reach out to this person and let them know that I've made a film that they might enjoy. And um, I instantly saw it as an opportunity to, uh, well, one, celebrate the fact that we both saw similarly slimy things and two as an opportunity to uh collaborate or to you know to discuss further so uh, yeah uh i sent a i sent a text i think and then yan uh, so yan hit me up maybe the next day and uh organized a slightly more official email exchange and now we're having these slime summits (laughs) in uh so in in relation to your film um how do you how do you describe it? Is it a video essay, an experimental documentary? Do you think of it as video art? Like, how how do you sort of position this thing? I did not know that you showed it in a pizza box, <laughs> which I also like, and that feels appropriately um, <laughs> cartoonishly uh, slime adjacent. Um, so I like that a lot. But I'm I'm watching it on Vimeo, and I'm just trying to think about like, okay, what is the context for this that Oliver imagines like the perfect viewing? Is it in the pizza box, or is it somebody? Uh, thinking about it like an explainer like is it a, an intro to slime how do you how do you talk about this with people well i'm primarily i'm i'm a video artist and i've been making these sorts of kind of like uh visual essays i suppose mm-hmm. they're not really documentaries and uh art films kind of suggest the wrong thing but they're normally shown in art galleries but they can kind of like work in other settings often but uh i guess i i mean initially kind of when i first started doing them in my late teens um along with uh, Nick Ralph, we were really sort of influenced by people like Patrick Keeler. Um, and then of course, the, that kind of like genre um, or subgenre became kind of quite popularized by uh, like Adam Curtis. But in reality, nothing ever really changed. Hmm. So I've always been kind of like looking for other ways to uh, essentially make make films where you show stuff and kind of like say stuff at the same time um but does it have to be uh, a coherent straight narration where i'm kind of linking these points and then uh 
I kind of struck upon this idea of if it was just simply a sort of like almost waiting for Godot kind of a back and forth uh, question and answer thing. I could alleviate myself with all of the busy work of having to make any sense whatsoever. I could just essentially kind of uh, just pose questions and then give mm. a, a kind of uh, a dubious kind of answer from a from an AI. Uh, and the most sort of like modern way to show this, I thought, was like a Californian teenager asking questions to a, a sort of Siri or type of person. And it just meant I didn't have to kind of like connect the dots too much i could just sort of let that happen in the person's mind who was asking the questions and i thought that that was a more uh maybe a, an approach to showing how we deal with new media um in mm. film because i think that we still really really or i think cinema and television really struggles with how to represent new media and how to represent how we actually relate with, with computers and smartphones and tablets and how we text or tweet or um, and there's no really kind of dynamic way to show that on screen. Um, we're still in the kind of like yeah. text bubbles popping up on, you know, sort of situation. It's why everybody, people keep wanting to make pieces or make films that exist before the advent of smartphones because it's such a pain in the ass to show people communicating <laughs> over text bubbles. Yeah, totally. Huh. Um, and and I think um, what the boy in in my film is doing is what a lot of us spend a lot of our time online doing where we kind of go on these sort of rabbit holes where we just sort of like search something we thought of recently and then that kind of like makes us think of some other things and we go on this kind of stream of consciousness through different kind of like wikipedia pages and youtube videos um and i, I never really see that shown i never see anyone in like a film kind of like doing that because there's no kind of neat way of doing it so i just kind of hmm. made the film that i guess um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that quest for that quest for information now is much less finding an oracle on a hill or something and just sort of sitting engaged with just like a device. It is difficult to depict. Yeah, it's 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 so awesome to hear you uh, talk about that that kind of um, uh, that type of structure um, of your piece, Oliver, and um, also the way that this sort of um, relates to yeah our experience of doing research online. I mean, looking at my browser tabs right now, there are, you know, at least 50 of them open. And um, I would be hard pressed to kind of like explain like how one relates to the next. Um, <laughs> and the hearing you also reference Adam Curtis, I'm thinking about sort of um, at the time when I was really kind of thinking about structure and how to put this project together as a kind of like, you know, a text uh, for lack of a better word. Um, that I, I kind of, uh, one of the biggest challenges was trying to think about how to sequence things. I arrived at like a chronologic strategy, but it still felt very much like kind of one thing next to the other. Oftentimes the kind of, um, there was quite a conceptual leap for the reader to make. Um, and I think this is like, in a way for me, like a post internet project in that I don't, think that putting it together in that way would be possible without really being sort of affected like in a way by that inter the internet you know experience of information which is you know oftentimes without a connective rationale you know for one experience to the next yeah yeah aside from the slime i mean it sounds like yeah there's also like an approach to sequencing or editing that um that is also uh, like a formal tendency maybe that both of us are thinking about definitely feels like both 
pieces are constructed, both the book and the film are constructed out of these vignettes that kind of like they follow a certain logic. Like in Oliver's, there's a series of questions or this knowledge seeking. And Christopher, you said, as you mentioned, you use this chronological organizational tactic, but it feels like one could hypothetically go into the book two thirds of the way through and read a couple sections on a given decade or what have you, or in Oliver's piece, if it's looping in a gallery, you could come in at any point and you could just sort of immerse yourself and kind of flow through it in this viscous way that uh, feels very appropriate. I think for slime is that it isn't, it isn't really solving something, I guess, in the traditional <laughs> sense of like a narrative film or even like uh, an academic text that, you know, Christopher, it's not like at the beginning, you're saying in in this book, I shall, you know, I endeavor to X, Y, or Z. It just sort of like, arrives at this point at like the contemporary where it's kind of like, well, we're still in we're in the slime era, but things have changed, um, obviously quite a bit. By taking what is kind of like a clinical and focused approach, the chronological one, like, did anything reveal itself to you that you think wouldn't have been there had you done a more poetic or thematic kind of organization? Um, like how Oliver's is a little bit more this type of poetry and yours is this linear kind of process, even though, as I just said, one could loop in it. But what what comes out of it by being that specifically uh, like rigid and like, I'm going to do it in these years, you know, like being very linear for something that feels like it's whole, I'm just thinking out loud here, but part of the excitement of ooze or slime or whatever is that it has the potential to like ruin the linear, right? Like to like create uh, mutations or like weird pathways or something. So I'm wondering by like being so disciplined, something revealed itself. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, um, as you've just described it, there's a kind of sliming of the grid that happens even when trying to work with the chronological framework, because at a certain point, one thing that stood out to me is that there are multiple visual and conceptual descriptions or representations of slime. It's very floating. It's very kind of unfixed or unhinged, very elastic in its definition and in its capacity to kind of mirror or um, uh, kind of show something about a cultural moment um, or a social moment. Um, so it has this kind of like, you know, capacity to absorb and reflect meaning. There are uh, different kind of ways that that happens. The earliest references to slime are asphaltic slime um, there's representations of slime that's pink and maybe more kind of physiological um, mm -hmm. references and representations of slime that's green. Um, uh, slime is, you know, white in the case of early ectoplasm photography, um, etc. And uh, at a certain point, the definition becomes somewhat kind of like tethered or kind of fixed to the slimy green substance with a particular viscosity that yeah. I think is we kind of like intuitively know. But even from there, which I would say 1986, at least in kind of, you know, in terms of what's in the book seems to be like peak slime um, in terms of occurrences of it. Even there, you know, after 1986, it begins to kind of open up again and become more, you know, complex and more nuanced. Um, and uh, so that was one thing that stood out. And I think that that was kind of necessarily like a chronological or a historic observation um, mm. that, uh, you know, otherwise, like I was thinking of other organizational structures, you know, you could say something that uh, you could organize it around kind of like black slime. 
pink slime, green slime, gotcha, white slime. Yeah. And so that would that's another example of how it could have gone. But I do like the way that the chronological shows a kind of an occurrence, a disappearance, a reappearance. And I think there's something slimy about that um, because it oftentimes is like phantasmic or kind of ghost-like. Um, um, it is sort of uh, sh- shadowy, um, you know, yeah. I, and, and I'm still learning about about it all the time. I mean, it's by no means comprehensive. <laughs> and um, although at a certain moment, I really attempted for it to be, and I think it kind of, you know, like you said, John, it, it kind of resists uh, comprehensive <laughs> understanding. Um, and I, I like also that you pointed out, thank you. And it's true that there is no thesis here. There's no argument. And I think that that was another really important kind of um, uh, idea that I had to um, hold on to as I was working on the project. So I, I think also like to your point, uh, what's so compelling about using slime um, as an object uh, chronologically that mirrors society, whereas um, ordinarily uh, we, we're kind of used to people doing this uh, with our, our you know, the history of the refrigerator or the automobile or the, and it's always um an object which our relationship culturally has shifted with since its inception or invention, but uh, it's always had a kind of use value within society. So to pick Mm. an object like slime that clearly has no use value whatsoever and essentially a form of kind of like plastic waste, to give that the same chronological treatment, um, I think leads to, to, to such potentially more kind of like interesting kind of observations. By looking at it chronologically and also considering this like uselessness of it or that it being this byproduct of specific kind of like technological cultural and like I guess like military advancements and things that are happening um I had not I I guess maybe subconsciously I had you know sort of clocked that the era of slime in my own imaginary is like the kind of like peak cold war prior to the fall of the Berlin Wall right like the same kind of culture on that just I guess maybe that just in my head like they rhymed somehow but I didn't really think about it as uh as much as I did after watching both your film and reading this text about this idea that in the 80s and 90s that slime was this kind of like nuclear power slash toxic waste sublime like there was this like horror around it as a result of the fear of um post Chernobyl um Three Mile Island like these kind of meltdowns but also this nuclear brinksmanship that's going on and in that terror around those things but simultaneously this explosion of the toxic avenger of teenage mutant ninja turtles of all of these different types of potentialities that exist in it so there's this horror and this kind of excitement happening and this kind of like in the clinton 90s just kind of like disappears and then yeah there's this gap um and then all of a sudden i'm wondering like okay this reappears now right in contemporary culture under this kind of diy etzified sensory therapy that like kids are doing on the internet or something is this type of escapism yeah i mean th- th- that's kind of like three th- these three kind of major shifts of slime of a kind of peak post-cold war 80s slime which goes on into kind of uh nickelodeon 90s sort of slime then the absence uh where it sort of seemingly disappeared from culture and then it's kind of like huge sort of like post in, where it's internet resurgence um mm. and there i think there are really kind of interesting reasons for all three of those sort of appearances and disappearances mm. it being um as big as it was 
during the kind of Saturday morning kids cartoon era. That's just a lot to do with sort of uh, just branding, I guess, and IPs hmm. and um, and each different sort of like toy company having its own version of slime, which I think is a really interesting shift from previously. It had either been like Mattel produced slime that was just called slime. And then you see it in kind of cheaper toys like uh, Wacky Wall Walkers and Magic Sticky Hands. And you see a kind of version mm-hmm. of, of it there. But it was largely kind of like a, it was branded, but in but in in one kind of way, and then this kind of explosion. Of, it was like the commercialization, basically, I guess, of, uh, of of all of these different ones, where you have Ninja Turtle slime and Ectoplasm from Ghostbusters and the He Man slime. As you mentioned, the '90s, just something about you can't do that on television with slime as both like punishment and like ecstasy like simultaneously like being penalized for your ignorance right like you say i don't know you get slimed and you're like mad but at the same time it's like you kind of want to get slimed oh it was like a baptism i think yeah (laughs) they were they were flocking to be baptized by slime yeah 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 i mean just the there's like super cuts right in your film of just people (laughs) getting just goosed by this stuff and it's like i mean it's purely abject it's like really funky and you know thinking about Mark Summers on that was double there, right? Um, but just this this suite of these shows where it's really weird. It's just kids just getting hit with goop, and it's like kind of fucking uncomfortable. <laughs> it's all a bunch of weird things, but. You were going to say something about thrash metal. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, thr- I think thrash metal was so like amazingly sort of myopically preoccupied with uh nuclear armageddon mm. um mm-hmm. because uh and in the in the film i say i make this sort of equation where i say that thrash metal is a uh, punk mi- minus politics plus heavy mm. metal mm. minus history um and i think that that's really apt because it's like a the metal that it was inspired by i mean it's always a history lesson with those guys you know iron maiden always banging on about something that happened in the past that was really like of no relevance to these kind of skateboarding californian teenagers um and the punks were so you know so boring and preachy with all of their kind of like ethics and morals and boring stuff like that so this idea of kind of a uh just the enemy had to be kind of like it had to sort of like not really exist but it also had to be completely of its time so this kind of like nuclear annihilation was so attractive i think to uh to thrash bands and kind of with that came kind of this image of slime which then found itself in the skateboard graphics and then on the wheels and stuff like that it's another one of those situations where there's like uh it's horrifying and alluring at the same time this idea of being like obliterated by nuclear war is devastating but also the potential that could come after it the mutations the all these different things so like only looking forward with no kind of context for the past also this this idea of consistencies that stand out like in the history of slime in terms of the function that it serves and i think um oliver's piece like illustrates this in really kind of um, amazing and sometimes surprising ways and something to a certain extent that I was thinking about in writing and also kind of in thinking about in new and different ways since um, is just the way that slime seems always to occur where some kind of threshold crossing is happening. Um, And that could be sort of 
uh, threshold that's being crossed kind of like culturally, you talked about sort of, you know, the, the Cold War, um, the potential kind of threshold crossing of nuclear annihilation, um, mm-hmm. uh, et, et cetera. And that I think goes all the way down to sort of threshold crossing um, that occurs sort of in the human body or sort of happens in a biologic sort of physiological way as well. Um, we see it, of course, in horror films, whenever someone is passing from one dimension into another there's a residue of slime either left behind or kind yeah. of slime facilitates that transition so yeah it's like another it's another um consistency in how that works maybe we could consider um this is another example of that boundary crossing the way that say like teenage mutant ninja turtles starts as this kind of underground comic by eastman and laird and then ends up as mm-hmm. this kids a cartoon show called teenage mutant hero turtles Some context, for our non-British listener, the cartoon series Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which as the name suggests features four mutated Ninja Turtles, was first shown in the United States in 1987 and became an instant television hit. Because of its big success, the British were soon eager to buy the series, but due to a strict protection of minor law, the series had to be censored there. For the most part, only scenes showing Michelangelo using his nunchucks were edited or removed. Furthermore, dialogues were edited to turn the word ninja into hero. However, sometimes complete scenes are missing due to the use of the word ninja. In addition to that, sound effects were added in fighting scenes to make them sound funnier and less scary. Teenage Mutant Hero Turtle, Teenage Mutant Hero Turtle, Teenage Mutant Hero Turtle, with its slime that you can buy in toy stores, and the way that kind of, you know, like, Lloyd Kaufman's trauma scars kind of factory that makes, like, toxic yeah. Avenger becomes, yeah, yeah. like, the toxic crusaders who actually, you know, their cartoon was about actually cleaning up toxic waste, wasn't it? They were like an eco, <laughs> eco-warriors. Um, again, <laughs> with their own slime that you can buy from kids' store. Well, what do you guys make of this gap between 80s, 90s peak slime and this resurgence? I don't know when I first heard about kids making slime at home, but what, what's, what do you make of this? The disappearance in particular. I mean, I, yeah. I, I only have really brief sort of thoughts on that. And that was a difficult point of research because I really struggled to find anything. And um, it was a moment where I did expand my definition or my criteria for what I might need to consider as slime. I was convinced that it was in front of me, um, that it existed on the timeline, but I just wasn't able to find it. Um, I still am unable to find it, um, but there were a couple of like interesting clues um, that have really only um, kind of become meaningful to me, like after the fact. Of course, like the the most clarity I've had on this project is after <laughs> it's, after it's been published. Unfortunately, yeah, of course, always. But, yeah. Um, yeah, it was pointed out to me, um, and I'm not like um, uh, an expert on psychoanalysis by any means, but apparently, um, Carl Jung wrote about black slime um, and used it as a metaphor for um, the uh, the uh, the subconscious or the or kind of unconscious thoughts. Um, mm. And um, I was thinking about this in relationship to one of the only mm. sort of significant references to slime uh, in my project in the '90s, which was um, the Grove uh, portal in Twin Peaks, which is yeah. a mm-hmm. asphaltic pool that is mm-hmm. a um, what do you, what do you call it? A portal, 
a pathway between the two the kind of lodges. <laughs> yeah. And um, aside from that, um, there wasn't a lot else. Um, and um, aside from finally some references in The Simpsons, um, which prolifically picked up um, some references to, uh, to slime and toxicity, proximity to toxic waste, uh, the nuclear power plant being in the middle of the town, et cetera. Um, so those were significant. But aside from that, there was an absence. Um, and so I don't know, you know, I guess it would, I'm really curious to hear Oliver's thoughts on this. And actually, it's not something I, don't, I think that we've talked about. Um, but the asphaltic slime, for me, represented kind of this moment of like disappearance. Uh, I Well, for me, I think it's a during during this sort of early 2000s up until about sort of 2010 perhaps or at some point in the 2010s um during kind of like web uh, the first wave and then 2.0 um as people were kind of like migrating to kind of like digital lifestyles and migrating to kind of social networks and then kind of to social media um at first like slime was largely absent because there was no like obviously apparent way to sort of integrate uh, something so essential into a kind of digital environment, something that was so kind of like uh, uh, fundamentally uh, based on 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 its sensory touch experience, um, so it had no kind of like place. But at the same time, I think that's when we saw uh, the rise of like the blobject, and where personal objects were becoming kind of like rounded and. Uh, this new mm. kind of like injection molded plastic technique coming into kind of like toothbrushes and telephones mm. and computers and kind of the, the corners getting rubbed off everything. So the mouse being the perfect example of this kind of like uh, the first Apple kind of like EMAC mouse. Yeah, like super ergonomic, like everything is sort of like molded to the body. Exactly. And all of this kind of like round writing. Oh yeah, the serifs. Serifs disappeared too. Utterly disappeared completely. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> so corners kind of like smudged off of everything uh, yeah. as we started to kind of like adapt to how to use things uh, uh, like Facebook or MySpace or what have you. Um, and then it finally hit. And I think again, it was monetization that really did it. Um, and it was... Uh, reimagined then obviously not as a kind of like this toxic cartoony thing but uh as a yeah as a sensory thing um and it came with mm -hmm. a kind of quite unlikely rise of uh, their a um you know their asmr videos um because yeah. people kind of didn't really twig at first that people would actually enjoy watching kids playing with toys as much as they enjoy playing with toys or people feeling a substance as much as they might feel enjoy feeling the substance themselves so the market for those videos i think was so huge and then also for the tutorials of how to make your own slime. Um, and that kind of created this cottage industry of YouTubers and streamers and people who could essentially make video content that could be monetized involving slime, um, whether that was through a sensory thing of watching people manipulate slime or kids teaching you on how to make gold glittery slime. And then of course they could sell it through. So all of that was happening, of course, on YouTube or video sharing, you know, or a Snapchat or something or Vine even. Well, it wouldn't have been that early, but, and then the monetization comes through the, uh, the Etsy stores and being able to sell your own slime. And then these stories, of course, these kind of Buzzfeedy type stories of like 10 year old makes millions selling mm, slime mm -hmm. out of their bedroom. Um, 
So it was this idea of monetizing your hobbies and this kind of gig economy of like never not working and always be hustling. And even 10 year olds yeah. kind of like being industrious enough to use the internet to monetize right. what they were doing, the kind of lemonade stand, but as a as yeah. a brand, you know. Superficial call here, but like 80s and 90s, you know, and you reference Pepsi in your uh, mm-hmm. in your video and things like that. But thinking about the the brand, like the big brands of the 80s and 90s and understanding like my role as a consumer versus now where I have to be both a consumer and a producer constantly at all times. Um, this big shift that's happened in there is is very strange in terms of like, yeah, you don't need to go buy slime from the companies that make it. You can be the producer of slime, um, but it's got this very like neoliberal uh, sheen on it where you can be like a slime entrepreneur or something like that yeah, I, don't know. Totally. Um, I was gonna say too that the weird just computer <laughs> reference the the big change in computers that of course predates uh the dot-com boom and things like that though but the that the the acronym is GUI, right like uh graphical user interface is sort of a funny uh pretext for like that that computers change into this slimy kind of space oh yeah of course and there's gray goo as well right christopher you kind of hinted at this too about expanding your definitions of slime and i'm just wondering like i'm thinking of all the synonyms or different things that come about and all over your film opens with a few of them too but there's like you know i was as i was reading through christopher's book i'm thinking like oh where are the ninja turtles and then i'm like oh wait well that's ooze so maybe that's different because of (laughs) x and then i'm sort of laughing at the semantics of it but i'm wondering like are are there for the two of you differences between slime ooze? Uh, obviously, we know ectoplasm has a certain kind of connotation, but like sludge, goop, gack, like all these different things. Like, is slime in the way that like all uh, rollerblades are inline skates, but not all inline skates are rollerblades? You know what I'm saying? Like, what is, <laughs> where does what's the umbrella for this? Yeah, I like I kind of enjoy the limitation of the word slime related to this expansiveness of the concept and the visual representations. Um, I think there is an interesting connection between that tension and this this kind of translational decision that was made in the Jean-Paul Sartre text by his translator, Hazel E. Barnes, who translated Sartre's use of the word visque, which is essentially viscousness or Mm -hmm. uh, viscousy, and chooses the word slime because um, she feels that it is a more accurate kind of translation or representation of what it is that he's referring to. I think like in that moment though, uh, slime, even though it is kind of hard to pin down as we've been talking about, viscousness exists kind of like there's a spectrum of viscosity, something that's very viscous to something that's not you know very viscous at all. It's like everything between a solid and a, and a liquid basically. And so there's an odd, it's an odd kind of trade-off, right? It, it allows it to be named at this critical kind of moment, at least in, in sort of the, um, in the project as I was working on it, but it also makes it challenging to then kind of differentiate different types of slime. I mean, mm. this is, this is sort of like, uh, like a really important part, I think of the way that we think about slime is, um, you know, Sartre uh, insists that it's sticky and that it actually uh, poses a kind of threat to us, right? We can be ingested by it. We cannot slide across it in the way that we would slide across uh, the snow on skis. Mm-hmm. But in our sort of experience of slime, slime can be slippery. Um, slime can be sticky. Uh, slime can be sweet. It can be kind of acerbic. Um, you know, it can be, it can have all these different qualities. And we would 
probably sort of be able to use flan to describe it in all of those forms. But yeah, it doesn't quite, it's, you know, it's kind of like that, like it's a definition, but um, yeah, then there are all these subcategories, GAC, goo, oobleck, et cetera. Um, and some of them have a fidelity to that kind of, um, you know, that ontological definition that SART provides, which um, is, isn't a kind of an important developmental moment. And in other cases, it totally defies it, um, but is still to us slimy. And I, I kind of love that um, elasticity of, of, the, of the, the word. Yeah, I feel like sludge for me is like slime plus. <laughs> Like yeah. slime that has been like either industrialized or like mixed with a particular type of like earthy material or something, but it is slime is a, a con, is carry it's the medium that the sludge is occurring in. Right. Or something. I don't know. Right. I guess some of these branded slimes, um, they come they come with uh, these inherent properties, these fictional properties that have been bestowed upon them because of the law mm. of the kind of universe in which they exist. So they 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 are. They not only have the kind of like non-Newtonian chemical properties of the actual slime, but also they are, you know, part of Slimer or they are, you know, what made yeah. the Ninja Turtles how they are or, or what have you. So I quite like that there's this kind of uh, invisible extra baggage to these different yeah. subcategories of slime. I like, did you say non-Newtonian? I like that. <laughs> it's sort of the, yeah, it's sort of slime, slime is physically non-Newtonian. Tonian in the way that spaces in Lovecraft are non-Euclidean, right? Like this kind of like this, this um, I was going to ask too. I mean, it's one of the it's one of the synonyms for slime, but like, and maybe this is related too to the attractiveness of watching people play with slime through this kind of ASMR like self um, careification of everything. Uh, what, what do you make of uh, Gwyneth Paltrow's? lifestyle branding empire goop yeah i mean just look how far slimes come that it can be kind of recast in such a different way i i use the word goopification quite frequently actually so it's really nice to hear you asking about it um i use it almost exclusively though actually when talking about uh, medicinal marijuana because it's such an interesting object to see repackaged and to be goopified and this idea that that something once kind of like uh, a plant that was once criminalized can now be viewed as a, as a wellness sort of goop thing. But purely through a branding and aesthetics and fonts and color and packaging, all of these sorts of things that inform sort of uh, that messaging. Goopification. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a real thing. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I, w- I was thinking about it like, Oliver, I think in um, a conversation that you and I had and when I was in Los Angeles in the fall, we were talking about slime performing, yeah, kind of uh, wellness or um, slime shifting in its kind of signification or sort of uh, connotation from being threatening to being something that could in fact be healing. Mm. And there seems to be like a, a real interest in this sort of potential for slime, especially yeah, relative to, um, I think, various sort of substances that were at one time had some kind of like, um, a, you know, baggage or negative connotation attached to them, yeah. which we now recognize, in fact, do provide this sort of loose, loosening or sort of more um, kind of fluid m- movement between the synapses in our brain or um, uh, allow us to sort of move through our day sort of with greater fluidity, etc. You know, there's some writers right now that I think are, are writing about kind of slime molds. We've even seen this in sort of television as well, thinking of The Last of Us. Mm. Of course, that's kind of zombified, mm. again, zombified. Sure. So yeah. we don't see the curative potential in it. But but I'm thinking of Lucy F. Jones, um, really interesting writer, recently published this piece, piece called um, Creatures That Don't Conform 
talking about mm. the way in which we can look at slime molds as modeling these um, kind of innovative or novel or highly efficient um, uh, networks of movement between proteins yeah. or whatever. And that it sort of models the kind of potential new way of forming communities or a kind of resilience of being. Uh, Susan Wedlick, German science writer, recently published a book called um, A Natural History of Slime. And she talks purely about the sort of scientific dimension of slime and really has a position that um, sort of kind of puts forth this idea that slime can save the world, um, that it in fact is kind of appearing everywhere that there's um, kind of, you know, extensive kind of damage or trauma to the environment happening that slime mm. suddenly appears as a kind of protective barrier or as a film or, um, uh, you know, as a kind of a buffer. And yeah, I love this idea. I mean, I think, you know, as it relates to the goop notion, there's this um, just an idea of the kind of curative or medicinal or kind of healing function. Clinical and antibacterial. Yeah. Antibacterial. Yeah. yeah. And I think that is, I really like that kind of idea because I think it is like a, um, a radical reinvention of how we think about slime. Um, yeah. And I think it's uh, really like positive, like in multiple ways because of the potentials that it opens up. It, it feels also to kind of round this back out to the beginning of Oliver's film. Like it feel that feels so massively West coast though. Right. Like New York slime. I don't want to go anywhere near it. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Like there's just like or some like slime from D.C. or, you know, like this different there's there's something about that, the potential of like the edge of the continent in California. But also like I'm thinking about the moss growing on a redwood emitting some kind of stuff. like there's such a more kind of uh, organic reason for the slime that it does make sense that this could be where like that kind of cultural shift could happen. Before I let you both go, I wanted to ask just um, one final question, which was, um, this is personal to me, like I said, I'm from Michigan. And so I, I just wanted to know whether you think that like ranch dressing, is that slime? <laughs> <laughs> or not slime? Not slime. Okay. Not, not slime, no. Um, I, I think uh, why <laughs> now that's quite that's a really interesting question because I'm not entirely sure why it's not slime um but I don't equate it as being slimy or having any of kind of any slimy properties in the way that something like a natu I don't know um, if I'm pronouncing that correctly if you've ever had the misfortune of eating that it's a kind of like fermented bean that's extremely popular in Japan and uh whilst oh, uh -huh. Uh, almost exclusively, like 99.999% of everything in Japan is absolutely delicious. That 0.001%, that is Nati, and it's the grossest. That is slime and uh, thoroughly inedible. Um, Amazing. Uh, well, you opinion. could dip it in ranch maybe would help. It would help massively. It would be a huge improvement, I think. <laughs> so there, perhaps, perhaps ranch is anti-slime, maybe. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I'm going to have to, I guess I'm going to have to push back on that a little bit. And um, <laughs> I'd say that, um, you know, I, if, if you're using kind of um, uh, a kind of grotesque amount of ranch dressing to lubricate yeah. the ingestion of some dry <laughs> French fries, you might be kind of taking advantage of its slimy qualities over its flavor. <laughs> um, it's possible that a slimy person might be engaged in this kind of behavior mm -hmm. with, um, with ranch dressing. Um, yeah. I mean, like with ice cream and a lot of these sort of like uh, creamy, uh, creamy foods, I am constantly now obsessed with looking at the ingredients to see if there's like guar gum. Like, why mm. is it soft? 
Yeah. And it turns yeah. out that there's a lot of sort of like ingredients in there that are that are kind of allowing it to have this kind of a. Um, uh, you know, the way it pours out of the jar or whatever, um, you know, so I don't know, I guess it depends if it's small batch, um, Michigan, uh, artisanal branch, I would say probably not slimy, but I would say if you, if you get some more kind of industrial manufactured ranch, yeah, yeah. The I'm potential... talking, I'm talking hidden Valley. Yeah. I mean, I'm talking, <laughs> cool. Um, well, Christopher Oliver, thank you both for joining me today. Um, the uh, the book is File Under Slime. The video is A Brief History of Slime. Uh, you can find links to both of those in the episode description. But, uh, fellas, this was great. I, I'm really enjoying um, the Slime Radio Hour, and uh, I want to keep having this conversation. So please keep up the good work. It was a pleasure to talk to you both. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks for having us. Thanks a lot. Eat a back of my mind, Oh, 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 oh,